All insurance companies owe their insureds something called the implied covenant of good faith and fair dealing creates different obligations in the first party and third party context. In the third party context, there's a wealth of law out there that says the insurance company owes its insureds an obligation to accept that reasonable settlement offer within the policy limits. Hey, this is Sean Kernakin, and you're tuned into Civil Action. This is the podcast of Cabotech LLP. We're a firm in downtown LA that does a lot of different work on the plaintiff's side. And we put this podcast on so we can share with you what we are learning about the law. Our weekly podcast is dedicated to important topics for lawyers and issues of the law. We have guests. We talk about recent cases. We talk about trends. We talk about practice areas. We try to help people be better lawyers and learn about the law. In some ways, you can look at this as a 15 to 20-minute law school class each week. Welcome back to Civil Action with Brian Kabatek and Mike. What do you not like to be called anymore, Sean? Sidekick. My sidekick, Sean. I didn't say I didn't like it. You could call me whatever you want. I don't, I don't care. Well, not 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 on live broadcast like this. <laughs> Let's yeah. just keep the, the sidekick. Anyway, my sidekick, Sean Kanarkin, one of our partners here at Cavatech LLP in Los Angeles. Pleased to be with you today. We've got a very fascinating topic about the difference between opening up the lid on a policy, an insurance policy with a first-party claim and a third-party claim, a UIM claim versus a third-party auto traditional auto tort case. We also have a a special guest joining us today, someone I like to call my sidekick, Barrett Alexander. He's one of the young lawyers. As I get older, everyone's everyone's slowly becoming a young lawyer. Put yourself in my position, Sean. Oh, yeah. Everyone's younger. One of the young lawyers in our office who I have the pleasure of working with on a number of different cases, but especially, and I think, you know, he's either faking it or I think he really likes it and he's good at it, insurance cases. So Barrett's going to be joining us today and talking to us about the difference or, or whether or not you can pop the lid on a UIM policy. Barrett, welcome to the show. Hello, so Barrett, let's, uh, first, let's just talk a little bit about you just for a minute here. You joined us, what, a couple of years ago, right? Yes, almost two years now. And uh, how, how have those two years been? I mean, compared to like with being in prison, how would you describe it? <laughs> <laughs> I describe it as busy, rewarding, a wild ride. Brian's joking. Barrett was not in prison before this. (laughs) Barrett grew up. I know this for a fact. Barrett grew up in Southern California. Barrett, after law school, went up to the far reaches of California, up in Redding, California, practiced law up there for a number of years. And then I lured him back here because I actually know his wife's family very well. And I lured him back here to the jungle of Los Angeles to come and join us. So we're happy to have you. You're a great lawyer, and we're certainly happy to have you aboard on the team. Thank you. Happy to be here. All right. Let's set up the discussion today. Sean, you want to set it up? Sure. I I think maybe a good starting point, and Barrett, you and I can maybe talk about this, is pointing out the difference between a first-party insurance claim or a first-party insurance bad faith claim even, and on the one hand, and on the other hand, a third-party insurance claim and a third-party insurance bad faith claim. So what's, Barrett, I'll let you talk about this. And it's kind of like a quiz to see how much you've learned working with me. I'm kidding. I know you know all this stuff, but what, can, can you tell us a little bit about what's a, what is a first party claim? Absolutely. It's a good question. It's, the answer is fairly straightforward, but it's important to understanding this topic. And so a first party claim is for losses sustained by the insured directly. A common example of this would be like, you know, people who own a home have homeowner's insurance, a storm or something like that comes through, causes water damage, you make a claim. That would be an example of a first party insurance claim and an example of first party insurance. 
Yeah, uh, and contrast that with like a third-party claim. When, in what context does, does that often come up? What's the classic one? Right, right. So uh, third-party insurance is for losses sustained by other persons for which you, the insured, may be liable. The most common example of this would be like automobile liability insurance, where, you know, God forbid you cause an accident, the person that was adversely affected may make a claim against you or your insurance company. Your third-party insurance would kick in and provide a defense and, if necessary, indemnity. Okay. So to recap, first party is when you make a claim with your own insurance company and you say, I've sustained damage, I have a contract with you, pay me benefits. Third party is when, as the injured party, if if you've been injured, your property's been damaged or something like that due to the fault of another, you turn to that third party, that tortfeasor's insurance carrier, and you say, hey, insurance company, I know you don't have a contract with me, but you have a contract with, with an insured who hurt me. I want benefits because they hurt me. Okay, let's drive it. Let's drive it home for what we're talking about today. And this would be in sort of the tort world, right? And particularly the auto tort world is what is a first party and what is a third party claim in that context? Naturally, when you're dealing with an insurance company, you're dealing with contracts. When you bring it into tort, that's usually in the form of a bad faith action. Insurance companies owe their insureds duty of uh, a duty of care. No, but I, I just want to be very simple about this to, to explain to our 11 listeners, or maybe it's 12 by now, <laughs> but that what we're talking about in the auto context is first party claim is UMUIM, right? right? Correct. Third party claim is liability insurance that auto that a, that a driver buys for him or herself right. for the car that they're driving, mm-hmm. right? So that's an important distinction for this discussion because it leads to the nuanced difference between whether or not you can open open up the policy. Let's right. let's so with that in mind, now let's pivot and and just briefly talk about because I think we could dedicate an entire show to this. Definitely. Talk about opening the policy limits in third party tort world. Got it. So this idea of popping the lid or popping the policy, it's a concept that would hold the carrier liable in torts in the third party claim context for a judgment that exceeds the insurance policy limits. But let me break that down a little simpler. Going back to the uh, scenario we talked about with a car accident, you cause a car accident with somebody else. That person then sues you. You have an insurance policy, let's say it's you know minimum limits of $15,000 per person. Claim is worth $100,000. Well, they make a claim against you. And you know, for, to make it simple, let's say that their damages are severe, maybe a broken arm, a broken leg that would easily you know, exceed your minimum insurance policy limits. But they, they're being reasonable. They offer a settlement within or at the max of your insurance policy limits. They say, hey, I recognize you don't have anything else out there that would satisfy a judgment. Let's settle this for $15,000. Your insurance carrier, for one reason or another, decides, you know what? Let's roll the dice. It's not my money I'm gambling with. Let's roll the dice, see if we can get a defense verdict. And it goes to trial, and there's a judgment that is far in excess of your insurance limits. Let's say it's for you know the whole $100,000 in damages. Well, now there's an $85,000 difference between your insurance policy limits and your judgment. The law would say that you can then sue your insurance carrier for bad faith and make them liable for the difference. That's referring to popping the policy. The carrier and and, and let me let me add a nuance here, Barrett. That that right to sue your insurance carrier for not settling the claim at or within policy limits. You can also, and this is what often happens in the PI context, you can assign that right over to the injured party who has that judgment against you. You can say, look, I don't have that kind of money. My insurance carrier screwed up here. 
go go after them and you can assign them that right correct and look guys this is a this is a whole discussion in and of itself oh yeah about there's all how these it operates rules. there's all nuances there's been court decisions in the last 12 to 24 months on this it is a hot 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 issue when it comes to to how do you what do you do to make a reasonable demand but that's ultimately what the what the issue is was it unreasonable for the carrier to have rejected the demand at the time it was made yeah right? Precisely. That, that's I kind think, of that world, right? The third party bad faith world. That's what we're talking about. You know, and unlike you and me, Sean, Barrett actually did a good concise job of explaining that issue about exactly what happens and how it happens and what's what's the issue. But at its core, it's the it's the importance of protecting the insured from an excess judgment. Someone came along and said, I'll take the 15,000 and now it's going, the, the limits are going up, but I'll take the minimum policy limits in exchange for a claim that's worth many times that $15,000, but you have to pay it. You have to pay it within a certain period of time. And in, in exchange for that, we're going to give the insured, your insured, a full release. The point I was going to say to, to kind of illustrate that is as, let's say, the plaintiff's lawyer representing the injured party in the accident, the only reason in this context you're able to get anything beyond the policy limits is because the insurance company screwed up in protecting their insured, not you, not the injured party, their insured. That's why if you get an assignment of rights that that insured has against the insurance company, you can get more than that because they were on the hook to you and your your, your client for a judgment beyond the policy limits because of their mistake because they gambled. so we'll do a, we'll do a whole show someday just about that issue and how you do it and how you perfect I, it. I think we've we've we, if anyone wants to go back i think we've covered a number of nuanced issues on popping the policy and new cases that have come down so you can go back in the archives and look at that but now i think let's shift and talk about the other end of what we were talking about here which is uim benefits can you explain a little bit what what that is barrett what, what type of coverage we're talking about Absolutely. So uninsured motorist is referred to as UM and underinsured motorist is often referred to as UIM benefits and coverage. What they are, there are special types of insurance. They are codified the insurance code under section 11580.2. They're very important. In fact, they're so important, the law will read them into any insurance policy that is otherwise silent on that type of coverage unless the insured expressly waived it in writing. So you're talking about two very, very important types of insurance. For uninsured motorists, it's a lot like what it sounds. It provides an additional pool of money for the insured to pull from in the event they are injured in a car accident from an uninsured motorist. For an underinsured motorist, that's a little more complicated in, in terms of how it's applied, but it does the same thing. It provides a pool of funds for the insured to pull from in the event they are severely injured by an underinsured driver. The determination for underinsurance is, as I mentioned, a little more complicated. It's not excess insurance. That's often confused for excess insurance. But what it is, is it treats the person who caused the accident as having insurance policy limits equal to whatever your UM, UIM limits are. So if I have, you know, UM, UIM limits of 30000 per person, and I get in a car accident that someone else caused that has $15,000 liability limits, then my UIM coverage would be the difference, 15000 not the full 30. You, 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 know, don't, you don't get to add it, I was going to say. Then, right. Again, that's, another that's thing. Been we a, do... That's been a big fight in Sacramento yeah. year, several years ago. That was a fight that we were involved in where we were trying to give it as a the ability to stack. So that if you had $30,000 of UM, UIM, regardless of what the insured, the uninsured or the underinsured motorist had, 
you would get that additional thirty thousand dollars if you had the damages. But that'd be ideal. It didn't fly. <laughs> we didn't so, Barrett, if that was the case, in Barrett's hypothetical, you'd have a total of forty-five thousand to be able to recover. Fifteen from the other driver, then thirty on yours. But that is not the case. I don't want anyone right. to take that soundbite and say he got this wrong. That is <laughs> no. Not but I think it's case. important to understand what yeah. what Barrett said is it's anti stacking. It doesn't. It isn't as he refers to as excess insurance. It is just in addition to right. to make sure that as Barrett, I think you said it absolutely right way, Barrett. Which is if you've got a hundred thousand dollar UIM, you make sure that makes sure that you're going to have at least a hundred thousand dollars of available coverage to protect you for whatever injuries and and damages that you have as a result of of the accident. Right, hundred percent correct. Yeah. So if the in in the hundred thousand example, not to beat a dead horse, but if the other side has no insurance, you get you can go you know try to get a hundred thousand from your carrier if the other side has twenty thousand in insurance policies aren't typically twenty but you can get eighty from your carrier you get the delta so that leads to the next sort of misconception or mysterious area or or, or kind of murky area that people might not understand if I have let's use a hundred thousand I have a hundred thousand in UIM coverage I get into an accident other UM UIM coverage uh, other side doesn't have any insurance at all I'm severely injured. My medical bills are in excess of $100,000. I'm going to need future care in excess of $100,000. I could prove that up. If I go to my insurance carrier and I demand that they pay that $100,000 UM policy limit and they don't, do, have I now popped the policy? Have I now you know, created a right to get go after them for the excess of what my real care costs are going to be or my medical bills are? It's a good question, and the answer is no. It does not operate the same as a third-party insurance claim or context would. The first-party insurance context would, you would not be able to pop the policy. The primary reason for that is rooted in the difference between third-party and first-party insurance claims. So in the third-party context, when the carrier, as we talked about a moment ago, denies a settlement offer within, we'll say a reasonable settlement offer that's unreasonably denied within the defendant's insurance policy limits, the carrier is now gambling with its insured's money if it has reason to believe there's there's you know a good chance that the liability is far in excess of those insurance policy limits. And so the law says, look, all insurance companies owe their insureds something called the implied covenant of good faith and fair dealing, creates different obligations in the first party and third party context. In the third party context, there's a wealth of law out there that says the insurance company owes its insureds an obligation to accept that reasonable settlement offer within the policy limits. And as Brian mentioned, there's a whole other discussion that need, would need to be had on like the nuances of that. But just to keep it simple, in the first party context, the obligations are different and they owe their insured a duty to not unreasonably withhold benefits owed. So if they deny the claim, they could expose themselves to various types of bad faith damages we can talk about later, but you can't pop the policy. And the reason being a carrier is liable for whatever damages flow from its breach of that implied covenant we talked about a moment ago. So in the easy example, the third-party insurance claim, when the carrier says at that definite point in time, no, I'm rejecting your reasonable settlement, that directly causes a judgment far in excess of those insurance policy limits. The that they're insured is on the hook for, right? Their, yeah, right. Yeah. That becomes their damages. But yeah. when it's in the first party context and the insurance company in the, the UIM carrier says, no, I'm not accepting that claim at this time, or they're delaying payment of settlement funds, 
that that money ties back to the automobile accident that it's insured was in that it's making the UIM claim for the amount of those damages the entire claim for that 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 automobile accident like the damages are in no way affected by the insurance carrier's denial of right. the UM UIM claim it doesn't add any damages to what's already being claimed so the only things that would flow from it are things like you know consequential economic damages emotional distress you know sure and, 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 i mean it obviously legally it makes sense and that we understand that but there's part of the problem is there's very little incentive for these carriers to settle the um uim claim because they aren't exposed to more than the hundred thousand dollars i mean yes right the, conceptually there may be additional damages there may be bad faith damages but for the most part the the harm that's called caused to somebody is not having the money in in a timely fashion, right? Which is a right. lot different, and I, I just think there's there's not as much incentive to an insurance company to settle a UM UIM claim as there is to settle a third party claim. Right, hundred percent correct. And yeah, uh, what what I was going to add to that is, you know, in the in the third party case, the, they obviously we know this when we've we've kind of said this over and over. The duty is to the insured and to and part of that duty is to protect their insured from a judgment or a claim in excess of the limits. In the UM UIM context, you're making the claim with your own carrier for your injuries. It's not like you can turn around and sue yourself. You know, you can't, you know, Barrett Alexander can't go file a lawsuit against Barrett Alexander and, and say, you know, I caused me these injuries. So therefore, my damages are going to be ex in excess of the limits. So give me the limits. So I drop the lawsuit against myself. What, I mean, what, it's, what, it's, you know, it's crazy. if you were really designing a statute to encourage carriers to pay UMUIM quickly, it would be something along the lines of like, treble damages or something like that. You've got to, there's got to be some incentive because the problem I constantly have with UM, UIM is there are very little additional damages that come from delaying the, the case while it goes through and it's binding arbitration, binding UM, UIM arbitration. And, you know, I don't want to go too far down that road, but there, there's very little damages that flow from that kind of a case. You know, oh, it took yeah. me an extra year to get paid. Okay. Well, what did that cause you in the way of economic damages or, or emotional distress? Well, I, I want to bring up something that Brian actually taught me a while back, you know, the the, the Yoda to our insurance practice here. Uh, something that he told me is he has like a standard. It's like a made up standard that nobody's adopted. But, you know, all kidding aside, it's, it's probably a good way to gauge whether or not there's anything there, which is articulable harm. Is there any sort of articulable harm that the insured who made the UIM claim incurred or suffered as a result of the delay or being screwed screwed with in getting those UIM UM policy benefit policy limits? And and the one hypothetical that that I thought of, or maybe Brian had come up with this, is let's say you get into a really bad accident, you have a hundred thousand dollars in UM UIM coverage, your medical bills are right around there, you have some future care that you need in order to be able to you know, get back to work again or something like that, and your insurance company drags it, the other side doesn't have insurance at all. You get into an accident with an uninsured motorist, and your insurance company drags it out, makes you go to arbitration. It takes like two years. Ultimately, they do pay the benefits but it takes a long time. Yeah, theoretically, you do have a bad faith claim. You can bring a bad faith claim against your insurance carrier for purely the delay. And the articulable harm in that scenario is the fact that, you know, as a result of this delay, you had to dip into, and the, the added part of my hypothetical that I left out, as a result of the, the delay, you dipped into your pocket, into your savings, you weren't able to pay your mortgage, 
or you didn't get the treatment you need in order to get back to work. So you lost, you know, you, you, you lost your job or you lost your house because of the, the inability to pay mortgage payments. Yeah. In that kind of fantastical extreme. And they do happen. We've seen those. Cases. We've, we've those seen it. Cases. We've seen it. Not to say that it doesn't happen. And I'm not like mocking those scenarios. I'm just saying it's hard to come by. You don't see that often, but that's the type of scenario, an almost extreme example. That's what you, it's not totally made up either. These are based on facts that we've seen, but that's the type of scenario you need where you do have a viable bad faith. I, I, I really think there should be better rules here in the UMUIM because you can't pop the policy. I get that. And my idea of treble damages or something that if the carrier has a, a reasonable opportunity to pay the remaining $85,000 in Barrett's hypothetical and they don't pay it and then it goes to UIM arbitration and you get at least the $100,000, the 85 plus the 15, that they'd be then liable to pay treble. I mean, that might incentivize them. Or the other thing I constantly see about these cases too is that people find themselves, you know, in arbitration hell for two years. The carrier won't move the case to arbitration. Maybe at some point there, just like we've tried to start doing with with employment type arbitrations, is that if the carrier doesn't dutifully get the case to arbitration in a reasonable period of time, they lose the right to arbitrate and it goes to superior court. Yeah, maybe. I mean, both of those are good suggestions, I think. Yeah, you're right. Maybe having coming up with a stat, statutory damage framework where, you know, or automatic like attorney fees, automatic attorney like that fees. is that if you if you passed up an opportunity to settle it within policy limits in a timely fashion, that now you're obligated to pay all the attorney fees that the lawyer incurs. But I mean, ultimately, we come down to the same the same issue, which is you can't pop the policy on a UM UIM. And I've had lawyers before tell me that that was their belief of what they thought they could do. That's absolutely correct. Definitely cannot pop that policy like you could in the third party context. I would say of all the suggestions, which are good, I'm in favor of the latter one that you had mentioned, which is I think the attorney's fees claim would definitely get some people to settle the yeah, claim get a bit, or lose the right to arbitration altogether. Put it in Yeah, because presumably to pursue that arbitration for UIM benefits, you had to, you know, the, the injured party had to incur attorney fees. And oftentimes lawyers are maybe disincentivized in, in doing that on behalf of clients because the amount might be so minimal that it's like, well, I'm going to have to jump through these hoops. I'm not going to do this. And they'll turn down cases. Maybe if there is the glimmer of, hey, if you drag this out and you make the injured party and their lawyer jump through all the hoops and waste a bunch of time, then, hey, insurance company, you might be on the hook for those attorney's fees that you force them to incur, something like that. I'm I mean, curious because we don't do a lot of, you know, frontline auto accident type cases, we don't really see the UM, UIM context very often until it turns into a bad faith case. I, I wonder how prevalent they are today. I mean, I wonder what generally happens. Are carriers are carriers delaying payment? Are they not paying it? Is, is, is this something that's, you know, a, a recurrent problem? Well, if we only had a platform where people listened to us and they could provide feedback, maybe we can ask. I mean, if we had more than like 11 listeners, we could ask people out there. No, but all kidding aside, if you do have that, I, I think we'd like to hear from you on that. And, and you never know, you might be looking at a potential bad faith claim, depending on how it's handled, after we spent a whole episode talking about how you can't pop the policy. But like I said, that that scenario I gave where someone gets severely, you know, has has a severe harm in their life beyond just the accident as a result of the delay in benefits, that that is some sort of form yeah, of arguable harm. And part harm of the that... other problem that exists too is that quite often by the time the, the claim is made on the UM or UIM carrier, the person's already hired a lawyer. So it kind of takes away the argument that if you had simply paid me the 
you know, the additional $85,000, I wouldn't have had to go out and hire a lawyer and now pay that lawyer a third or 40% or something like that. And that's another one of the arguments that I've seen made. But a lot of times the retort to that is you already had a lawyer. You already were going to green to pay a lawyer a third or 40% of your recovery. So it's just a head scratcher to me because on the one hand with the third party cases, you have this great law and this great rule that care that is supposed to encourage carriers to pay in a timely fashion. Sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. But on the other side of the ledger, where it's you, the insured, there's there's just nothing there to incentivize the carrier to pay. And you know, I'll use I'll use our last couple of minutes here to also talk about another issue related to UMUIM that I've I've thought about often, which is Barrett started talking about in first party cases, it's the house floods. And you know, when I the analogy I constantly use is the house fire, the house, your house burns down. Well, you know, the carrier, you may have a million dollars of coverage. The carrier may come out and say, well, it's only going to cost $700,000 to fix your house. And you say, well, it's going to cost a whole million. Well, the carriers are under an obligation to pay that $700,000 that they view as undisputed damages. The same rule has never been tested when it comes to UMUIM. You know, the carrier may come back and say, well, we don't think we owe you 85000 but we certainly think your damages are forty. Will you take the forty? But in exchange for that, they want to release. My argument has been constantly... You, you can't ask for a release. If you think the claim is worth 40, give the insured $40,000. Never seen it tested. Always thought that that's something. Yeah. In fact, I, I think we've we've sort of even in the past looked for test cases. I know, Brian, you've been passionate about holding insurance companies accountable or protecting policyholders. So if you have that scenario where an insurance company doesn't dispute that a certain amount of UIM benefits are owed, but they won't pay it yet because you're claiming more is owed, they're conditioning payment of those benefits on a release, that might be a, a good test case to bring as a class action that we'd be interested in possibly looking at. Yeah, like Brian said, in a property case, if they tell you, well, we think the damage is you know, $100,000, even though you're claiming 150, here's the check for the 100, you can take the 100 and then fight it out. They can't condition the payment of benefits on a release in the first party context. So the same with the PI, you know, auto U, UM, UIM context, we think that should be the standard. So maybe there is a test case out there. And if you have that scenario, come to us. Shoot talk it to our us. way. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I think the ultimate, what we come down with here, and then we'll turn to Barrett for the last couple of minutes. But the, what we come down with here is that in, in a third party case, there's all kinds of ways to force the carrier to pay. In a first party case, it's very difficult, even though it's your own insurer. Yes, there's bad faith. Yes, there's the possibility of bad faith. You have to go all the way through a UM or UIM arbitration usually to get there to where you could file the bad faith case. There are exceptions to that, something we could talk about another time. But it, it is it is crying out for some kind of relief for policyholders who are shortchanged by their own insurance company. And uh, there's not a lot you can do about it. And they're tough cases to bring. The bad faith cases are ultimately tough cases to come. Doesn't mean that they're not legally able to bring them, but they're just tough cases to bring. Any final thoughts on this, uh, Barrett, that you want to share? Final thoughts on the specific topic, no, but I would just encourage people that aren't sure if they have the UM or UIM coverage to take a look when they have a moment uh, at their policy to see if they do have that coverage. And if they don't, to inquire with their carriers. It's about super cheap, by the way. It it's is. like the cheapest coverage you can buy is the UM UIM coverage, it probably because they never plan to play it. So it really becomes very <laughs> inexpensive that way. <laughs> when is. you're not going to ever pay a claim, it's just free money. So yeah. <laughs> well stated. So let's, let's, Sean, you know, we're kind of springing this on Barrett here, but let's just ask Barrett a couple of fast, fun questions before we uh, sign off today. Oh, sure. Non-law related question. Oh, food. Boy. What's your favorite food, Barrett? Favorite food? I got to go with a, uh, a bacon cheeseburger. If you hadn't become a lawyer, what would you want to be? 
I often joke with people that I should have been a dentist. <laughs> I understand they get to set their own schedules, work only a handful of days throughout the week. And <laughs> and spend the entire day in someone's mouth. Yeah, that, that, that might be a downside, but, you know. Yeah, I, I think that's pretty sad. <laughs> Unless you need a dentist. Yeah, exactly. That is yeah. also sad, right? Have you seen your dentist bill recently? <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, that, that's true. That's a good point. What, what's, what superpower would you want to have, Barrett? Super strength. Go with the, I, the, the normal You one. can't see Barrett, but he's pretty close to having that anyways. Yeah, uh, fun fact about Barrett that he used to be a competitive weightlifter and bodybuilder. So he, he kind of does like already you and have me, that. Sean, just like you and me. Sure, but the opposite, yeah. Yeah, yeah. favorite song? Oh, favorite song. Sarah by Fleetwood Mac is what comes to mind. One of my top yeah, favorites. Can understand why. <laughs> my wife's name is Sarah, for those who are wondering. All right, well. <laughs> Thank you, Barrett, for, for your time on yeah, this. Yeah, you've been great. Thank input. you. We're, this has been a good little quick episode on something that I think is important to a lot of lawyers, particularly tort lawyers. This is Brian Kabadek with Civil Action. Sean, you can sign us off. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in. If you have any questions, reach out to us, social media, or on our website at kbklawyers.com. If you have, if you ever want like samples of things or want to have questions to run by us, you know, reach out to Barrett. You're probably more likely to get a response from him than from me. No, but all kidding aside, you can reach out to any of us. If you have any of these scenarios we talked about and you want our input or you have different thoughts on it, please reach out to us. We'd like to hear from you and, and we appreciate you tuning in. Hey, thank you for listening today. We really appreciate it. This is Brian Kabatek. You can reach me at bsk at kbklawyers.com. And I'm Sean Kernikian. You can find me online at sk at kbklawyers.com. And as you might have guessed, our website is kbklawyers.com. You could find us on all social media platforms at Cabotech LLP. We like putting on the show. We appreciate you listening. If you can, go online and like us, give us ratings, follow us on all the different platforms. If you know someone that practices in a particular area and you, you think they might find this useful, feel free to share it with them. And feel free to reach out to us if you have any questions, if you want to bring an interesting case to our attention, you have a potential case you want advice on from us, we'd be happy to help you out if we can. And we'd love to hear from you. 